Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Jeffrey Schladow, Director of Turk, the Tahoe Environmental Research Center, and Professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UC Davis. His work looks at the interaction between fluid transport and mixing processes with water quality in both natural and engineered systems. In this episode, we talk about all things Lake Tahoe, from invasive species, the range of ecosystems, to it being the clearest it's been in over 40 years. Additionally, we unpack the research being conducted at Turk and the various methods we use to keep Lake Tahoe healthy. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Jeff Slatow. Thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you. This is, uh, is going to be fun. Yeah. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get to Davis and what got you interested in environmental engineering? Yeah, well, that's a long story. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad we have an hour. Um, I, I guess I came to Davis sort of after a pretty circuitous path. Uh, for a number of years, I'd been, I guess, a soft money researcher. So I'd been working prior to that in Australia for about four or five years. And then prior to that, I'd been at Stanford for four years. And then prior to that, Australia. And so um, it was... In some ways, Davis was, when when that opportunity came up, it was almost like a dream opportunity for me. It was just, I was reaching a point where I was making, I guess, life-changing decisions. Uh, would I stay in Australia? Would I had a number of job offers working for government research labs? And then the this Davis... I guess it starts off as an advertisement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a position. Should I apply? Yeah, why not? And it it just it worked out. I guess there was a a lot of people applied for it, and I was the, the lucky one. Got the job. Yeah. Could you define your role that you initially applied for, and then what you're doing now? Well, I, I guess in the faculty positions. Um, are, are very, I guess they're a lot broader than people sometimes think. Uh, so certainly with students, they just think of professors as, well, he or she teaches these classes, and they were hired to teach those classes. Well, that's only part of it. So you're hired into a department, and you are responsible for teaching one or two or you know, three classes in, in different areas, but you're also given the opportunity to develop your own class, something or maybe two classes that follow your own interests. So, so the required, say, rigid undergraduate classes is just a very small part of, of what you do. Um, and then a large part of, of what you do is research. And so, again, from the point of view of an undergraduate uh, you know, they they think the professors are all there just to teach. In some ways, although most of us love teaching, we get most of our our advancement and our thrills and recognition from from our colleagues you know, by the research. And so, and even with the research, it isn't like you are hired to do research in this field A or B or C. You never know when you hire somebody. Their experience is in one area and their qualifications are there. But if they suddenly take a tangent and go off, nobody can stop them. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, as as long as they uh, they keep teaching and teaching well, and they keep bringing in the resources they need for their research, it, they're pretty much free agents. So we're kind of like uh, like a marketplace. We're sort of <laughs> independent vendors with our stalls doing sort of what we want, taking us where our, our curiosity leads. Did you have a continual research theme throughout your career, or did you have different interests when you were working in Australia and at Stanford? Yeah, it, it it's evolved a lot. Um, and a lot of it evolved because of the realization that to do what I want to do, I need to bring in in money, mm-hmm. uh, funding. I mean, funding to support the research and then eventually to support graduate students and postdocs and, and things like that. So you know, early on, I was, I guess, interested in slightly more esoteric things, you know, more the physics of of fluids, what happens when you heat them a certain way, you know, what kind of motions produ- produ- does that produce? Um, and, and it was interesting. It was fascinating. I loved it. I was doing probably less field work, but more uh, laboratory work, and I was doing some pretty intensive computer simulations. And I guess over time, I started to realize, well, it's a pretty narrow field, and it's sometimes hard to get funding in that. And so I started branching out more into, well, what are the water quality impacts of these motions? What are the ecological impacts? So suddenly connecting these underlying physical processes with with things that matter to people. Um, even though my passion was with the, you know, say, the fluid mechanics, it was these other things that that make getting funding easier when to how it affects health and and the environment. So now, as you're you're the director of Tahoe Environmental Research Center, how much are you able to still continue doing the research while also like running the entire center? Well, a lot less than than I'd hoped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been doing this for. I think nineteen years, yeah. um, which is which is a long time, probably longer than I thought um, it would be. I mean, during that time, the center's grown a lot bigger. Uh, the world has grown a lot more bureaucratic, and the mm-hmm. university along with it. So every year, it seems that there's more, more and more administration sort of happening. So that that takes away from. You know what I'd hoped I'd be be doing more of, but it's still um, I still do it. Um, I sort of do it more and more through surrogates, mm-hmm. through you know, advising students and postdocs and working with colleagues. So that does get a bit frustrating. Yeah. So you know we were out on the boat yesterday, um, and I hadn't been out on the boat for. A few months, yeah. And every time that happens, I think I shouldn't let that happen. But then mm-hmm. it happens. So it—I uh, mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a trade-off. Uh, somebody has to do it, mm-hmm. and I just think you know I'm at a pretty senior point in my career. I would rather do that administrative legwork and you know, creating an environment for for with you faculty and postdocs and students to work in and yeah. get my um, – live vicariously through <laughs> them. Yeah. Yeah. 
What kind of graduate students typically come through the program? Like, can it be isolated to a certain few majors, or does it tend to be pretty widespread? It is. It is really widespread. So, I mean, we don't we don't have faculty associated with us directly. Mm-hmm. So, and we're not allowed to to hire faculty directly. So, so the you know, we offer a facility. You know, we have you know, research labs. We have we have housing. We have boats. Um, that we have to find funding to support, but then we try to encourage people at UC Davis, faculty, graduate students, colleagues from other institutions to to come and work. Hey, we have this here. Hey, we have this interesting problem. Your expertise is just what we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, we you know we rarely can you know, we can't fund them, but what happens is sometimes we write proposals together. Uh, and that funds them. So it's it's really trying to you know whip up interest and enthusiasm. And then once you're here, I mean Ta- Tahoe sort of takes over. It's yeah. really it's an inspiring place. You, as I said, you know I used to work sort of in a laboratory more, um, but now when you go out on the lake and you just sort of look around 360 degrees, that's the laboratory. Yeah, uh, it's it's it is amazing, and I've never met anybody, at least anybody I want to work with, <laughs> who isn't inspired by that. And yeah, come they leave with more enthusiasm than they often arrive with. Could you expand on just why Lake Tahoe is so important? Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's 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 beautiful, uh, it's unique, but you know, there are lots of beautiful and unique places. Um, it's, in some ways, it's very symbolic. Uh, it's recognized not just in California and the Western U.S. And, and all of the U.S. as being special, but people have heard of it around the world. Uh, and because of this interest and because of the funding that that's attracted over you know, half a century now, uh, it sort of begs the question, well, if we can't understand Lake Tahoe or help Lake Tahoe, what hope is there for every other lake and stream and wetland that doesn't get nearly the attention? I mean, they should all get as much attention as Tahoe, but that's that's not going to happen. So, so the fact that there is a lot of attention here, that there are resources, puts this onus on us to say, well, what are we doing with our funding? Where's this research leading to? And so we've been, I don't know if it's fortunate, but uh, you know, we've had the opportunity, I think, to make some pretty fundamental discoveries here that have inspired uh, changes here, but also changes, changes in other places because people look at, to what's happening at Tahoe. What were some of those discoveries? Oh man, you're getting technical now. <laughs> um, okay, so so one of the big ones. This is going back about you know, 20, 20, 25 years now. So the belief back then um, was that the decline of clarity in Lake Tahoe. So clarity is, I mean, it's something everybody can appreciate how far down into the lake you can see, but it's. It's also more representative of just the general health of the lake. So the belief back then, uh, because it was reflected in lots of places around the world, was a, it was the input of nutrients 
things like nitrogen and phosphorus from fertilizers that people use on their lawn, some of it from atmospheric deposition, that it was nutrients stimulating algal growth that controlled Lake, Lake Tahoe's clarity. So what we were able to show, and by we, I'm talking about a whole lot of people, students, researchers, uh, and even myself, uh, was that probably a more important factor were things that, that weren't alive. They weren't phytoplankton. Um, it was very fine particles that get washed into the lake probably because of all the urbanization that has happened around Lake Tahoe. When so start, like the urbanization trend? Uh, that sort of started, I'd say, in the 1960s. Okay. And there was a lot of unregulated growth then, yeah. uh, which has now become far more regulated. So what we were able to, to, to show pretty convincingly is that the majority of the clarity decline was due to this non-living thing that wasn't related directly to, to nutrients. And so that suddenly changed the whole the whole approach to to the the restoration efforts. So and that that's sort of that's pretty major. Yeah. Uh because a lot of I mean a lot of money has been spent at Tahoe and and the idea that a lot of it may have been spent on things that that weren't that important is um was uh, was good to find that out at an early stage. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do some of the institutions or organizations that are a part of the development, do they fund any of this research? Do they work with you guys? Well, yeah, we, 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 we try to do that. Um, we certainly look to some of the these management agencies that are sort of institutions of, of government in California and Nevada. I mean, Lake Tahoe embraces, you know, two states. Um, um, yeah, they they fund much of the monitoring that's right. going on. So we basically, you know, since 1968, we've been monitoring year-round uh, nutrient levels, these fine particle levels, clarity, the, the phytoplankton, um, things like that in the lake. And that's you know, in large part funded by them. Uh, and... There are more sort of fundamental research questions. I mean, monitoring is, strictly speaking, it isn't research. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a, you know, just keeping tabs on the sort of the vitals uh, of the system. But then as you look at that monitoring data, some interesting questions arise. And then these, these local agencies, state agencies, that's not really their their jurisdiction is to fund research. Um, they just can't get that funding very often. And that's where we we go to places like the National Science Foundation mm -hmm. or the EPA uh, and other groups to say, here's an interesting physical, chemical, biological problem. We we like to study it for this for this reason. And it has application not just at Lake Tahoe, but similar systems in, in other places. Could you maybe expand on how the research done here in Tahoe has helped other people around the world? Uh, well, sure. So there are, I mean, there are lots of examples like that. You know, one of the early things that was done at Tahoe, and by early, I mean decades before you know, I, 
I've been involved, uh, was the realization that no matter how highly we treat wastewater, we can never remove enough of the nutrients in it to to not have an impact on the lake. So the decision was made in the 1960s not to discharge treated wastewater into Tahoe. Right. And that's had an immense impact. I mean, so it's there's a deep sewage system. There are no septic tanks. It's collected at multiple points around the lake, has some treatment, but then it's pumped out of the basin. So that and that example has been followed in in lots of of other places. Not enough, possibly. Um, the others is you know, another example is you know, because of the research we're doing and uh, and the fact that that yeah, Tahoe has this reputation. You know, we always get groups coming in from from different countries. They want to see what we do. They want to learn what the problem is. Um, and I mean, in a normal year, we may have half a dozen different groups coming in from Bolivia or Japan or somewhere. And usually they come and they go. Uh, but you know, once every couple of years, you know, a year or two later, they come back. Uh, or contact us again, and so the one of the more recent examples was um, a group from Chile, uh, and the southern part of Chile, say northern Patagonia, it's pretty much in a state where Tahoe was forty or fifty years ago. So they have these beautiful, pristine lakes. You got the Andes in the mm -hmm. background, and they have you know, relatively low population. But there's this southward migration in Chile, people leaving Santiago, going to the south. And they could see, well, isn't that what happened to Tahoe? People came and the lake's quality, clarity started to degrade. And so we've been working with them for about the last five years now. Um, uh, well, we created a, a nonprofit down there, Chile Lagos Limpios, so you know, Chile's clear lakes or clean lakes. Yeah. And and they they have been supporting monitoring programs, the development of computer models, uh, education programs. So in some ways, initially it was trying to replicate the approach we take in here, but you know, over time it's sort of taking on its own unique Chilean aspect. I mean, they're yeah. doing it in their way that resonates with with people there. And can development be done in a way that doesn't have a net negative on the lake? Yeah, well, well I mean, that's the fundamental question there. I mean, it took us, by the time we realized what we should have done, a lot of the damage had been done. So they're, they're at the beginning of the process, uh, and they're also far more keenly aware than we were 50 years ago of mm -hmm. climate change. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you got this sort of dual thing happening, population growth, land use change you know, with it, and then climate change. So the whole focus has for them has been what are the impacts of that likely to be and how can how can they influence decision makers in their in at the federal level in Chile mm -hmm. and at the local level to start I guess, developing regulations or guidance that make sense so you don't have development in sensitive areas. Mm -hmm. That yeah, you, you, I mean, nobody 
really wants to shut down development. People need jobs. People need livelihoods. But whether you build a, a pulp and paper plant in this particular yeah. watershed or whether you have um, intensive animal rearing uh, in this part of the basin or this close to a stream or a lake, are the sorts of things that they're working on. I mean, you know, making, I mean, those sorts of examples of you know, intensive animal husbandry, and I mean, they're the big things, but there's also people, and, yeah. and people can be very careless in what they do, and cumulatively, that can be a, a very large effect. Yeah. And so having people be aware of the impact they could have and how they can maybe do things a little differently. So, yeah, there are things that can be done. And in some ways, that's going to be a better test case than Tahoe mm -hmm. yeah. because, yeah, they they hopefully caught it early enough. Is this research center one of the largest freshwater lakes research centers in the world? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, because sometimes they're say at the Great Lakes. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. there are, <laughs> yeah. you know, and there you ha often you have with you know multiple universities, sure. you have uh, federal agencies co-located. So, yeah, yeah, if it, yeah, we're we're not on that scale, mm -hmm. but as far as an individual lake, um, yeah, I think we're we're certainly up there. Yeah. Uh, with 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 some of the largest. Could you give us a Brief definition before we keep going on limnology. Limnology, ah, the queen of the sciences. <laughs> so, limnology is uh, pretty simply the study of lakes. Um, and lakes are, are very special because, in some ways, they that's where things often end. So, we've been talking about things taking place in the watershed. Well, a lake is usually at the bottom of the watershed. That's where all Could the you give a brief background of what a watershed is and how people should think about it? Okay. Um, so if we think of a, a watershed as literally being a basin within which all the water that falls within it focuses down to one point. So if we think of, of the Sierra Nevada in California, everything on the west side of that is that's a watershed that flows towards the central valley and eventually goes out to the Pacific. The east side of the Sierra, especially where we are in the sort of central northern Sierra, it flows to the east. Lake Tahoe is surrounded by by mountains, the Sierra Nevada on one side and other ranges elsewhere. So we're like a basin, a bowl. And so for us, we have a relatively small watershed and then whatever, whatever rain, whatever snow falls there either infiltrates into the ground, soaks into the ground, runs off into the lake, or it actually evaporates or transpires and, and leaves through the air. So all the, everything we do in a watershed, not just our watershed, but anywhere, all of that gets transported to the lake eventually. So the lake, and in particular its sediments, are like a, a repository of all the the deeds and the misdeeds of what's happened for, for thousands, well, forever, really, millions of years. Mm -hmm. And then how does eutrophication play into that? Okay, so eutrophication is this process of 
of nutrient enrichment. So algae, phytoplankton, they need nutrients to grow, just like lawns need nutrients to grow. So they're, they're like grass, except they're microscopic and they, they float around. Um, uh, and we need algae. Uh, it's the base of the food web. So having nutrients flow into a lake, stimulate algal growth is good. Eutrophication is, is just too much of a good thing. Mm -hmm. Too many nutrients, too, too high levels. Um, and so that's when you get too many algae, the algae die, they fall to the bottom, they decompose, they use oxygen, the oxygen drops, that promotes fish. I mean, there's a whole cascade of events that take place. So eutrophication is, is actually a very natural process. As I said, everything comes into a lake, and over thousands and millions of years, lakes become what we would say is more eutrophic. Mm -hmm. And eventually a lake stops being a lake, it becomes a wetland, and then it becomes a bog, okay. and then it becomes sort of squishy land, <laughs> if you will. But that can take you know, thousands and thousands of years. What the concern is all around the world is something termed cultural eutrophication, which is because of land use decisions that are being made, we're accelerating that process. And so we're getting enrichment of lakes far quicker than it would naturally occur. Mm -hmm. Are there any prominent examples of that occurring? Well, I mean, at Lake, what do you mean, at Tahoe or just elsewhere? generally? Like, are there examples where that eutrophication has gone to a point where it really is beyond repair? Well, I, I, I guess my my job, not just at Tahoe, but say you know, I'm in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering as well, and our you know, part of what myself and my colleagues do is work with with lake managers and reservoir managers to to help them better manage systems. So to say where for to say it's it's beyond the point of of no return is is bad for business. So yeah. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, some places yeah have gone you know to very bad places, but it's through. You know, this kind of study through limnology, the study of lakes, the physics, the biology, the chemistry, that as you understand the processes, you can you can at least present options. And mm -hmm. often those options aren't taken up. They say, well, that's too expensive or it's not worth it. But, I mean, an example is another lake, I guess about the same distance from, from Davis as, as Tahoe is, um, and it's in the coastal range, so northwest of Davis, it's called Clear Lake. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of almost in some ways the opposite of, of Tahoe. I mean, it's a very large lake, but instead of being sort of oval-shaped, it's it's got three distinct basins. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's sort of very complex. There's a, a volcano there. It's um, it's a shallow lake, um, and it's far richer in nutrients naturally than, than Tahoe would ever be or has ever been. Um, and it has it has lots of challenges um, because of all the nutrients that come in. Uh, there are very very 
uh, high, a lot of algal blooms. Mm. A lot of these algal blooms are what we call cyanobacteria. Mm -hmm. So they're termed harmful algal blooms because they produce toxins. And so it has multiple issues. Mercury mining there is another one. So it, it, it's a case of it has a lot of problems, but you know we and others are working to address those problems and to actually come up with what we believe are manageable, affordable solutions. Um, but again, it's not our lake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's, those decisions have to be made locally. Yeah. So, And we talked a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk later on the talk about some of the ecological solutions. What are some of the engineering solutions that you've worked on? Okay, well, continuing with Clear Lake, uh, part, you know, We've been running a monitoring program there for the last five years, probably a far more intensive monitoring program than than we have at Tahoe. Uh, and so, what we've been able to determine is that the biggest the biggest issue, biggest challenge they're facing, is the fact that many times throughout each summer, the bottom waters of the lake lose their oxygen. Because it's so it's so organic rich that just a few warm days things quieten down and the oxygen just rapidly gets depleted. Huh. So chemically, when that happens, it the nutrients that are locked up in the sediments solubilize, meaning they come out of the sediments mm -hmm. into the water. So suddenly you're adding huge amount of nutrients to stimulate even more algal growth. You have mercury that's sort of locked up in the sediments. Again, when oxygen is at low levels, it transforms to something called methylmercury, which is almost like an organic compound yeah. that can be taken up by, by, by organisms. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, once it gets into the zooplankton and then the little fish eat it, and eventually people eat the fish. And so you have just those two problems alone. If you could keep the oxygen always elevated, then a lot of those issues would, we believe, go away or at least be greatly diminished. So the solution that you know we're proposing um, is something called, uh, wait for this, hyperlimnetic oxygenation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so hyperlimnion is the, the bottom waters of the lake. Uh, and oxygenation is adding oxygen. So the idea is that as oxygen approaches zero, you turn on this system, it injects pure oxygen mm -hmm. into the bottom of the lake via very fine bubbles, and they dissolve and they, they keep the oxygen up high. It's actually an incredibly simple technology. Um, so you may be familiar with these things you can buy at the hardware store, soaker hoses. Yeah. So yeah, they're sort of rubbery, spongy thing. So literally, if you pump gas or oxygen into that, um, it comes out as a mist of very fine bubbles that, that literally dissolve within a few feet. And so that's that's what it entails. Um, I mean, it's not us sort of going there and connecting hoses. There are uh, there are companies that have done this on a huge scale around the country. 
But that's something that I think is very affordable. And we actually have a proposal in to fund a pilot project in one of the three arms of, of okay. Clear Lake to, to do it, to monitor it, uh, working with collaborators from the U.S. Geological Survey, looking at the effects on mercury there, uh, working with with local tribes and, and the county, looking mm -hmm. at the effect on the algal blooms. So if that funding comes through, it'll be a, I mean, a very tangible example of, of monitoring and research leading to to an action that we can test whether it works or whether mm -hmm. it needs refinement or not. Yeah. And then when you talked about the methylmercury, is that the similar process to why a lot of the ocean fish are getting mercury poisoning? And like, that's why people are concerned about eating a large amount of ocean fish? Well, uh, uh, the source of it, of the mercury, is maybe different. Mm -hmm. So for many places, the mercury is coming from atmospheric deposition because of things coming out of smokestacks from coal burning, okay. stuff like that. But but the, but the human health problem is that uh, as mercury is ingested um, you know, by the smallest organisms, every time you go up in the food web, yeah. you get a ten to twenty times multiplying factor. So by the time you get to a to a swordfish, mm -hmm. for example, you know there there are multiple things that have been eaten along the way. A lot of focusing of the mercury. And then swordfish live for a long time. So they have very high body burdens. So mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that, that's sort of, it's, yeah, that's the, the underlying issue. Whether, yeah, whether, yeah, where the mercury comes from is sort of a, a yeah. bigger question, but it's this food web focusing that's driving it. And in order for the bacteria, the zooplankton to eat it, or to take it up, and you just add a methyl group, in, and then it becomes bioavailable available to those. It it be, it be certainly easier for it to assimilate. Yeah. Um. So it's yeah. I mean, it's basically like methane is CH four, mm -hmm. methyl mercury is CH three. Yeah. With the mercury replacing one um, of the H's. Yeah, that was my point. Just like how, yeah. just four atoms can completely alter how yeah, it happened. It is. So, I mean, things like elemental mercury really, well, sorry, well, cinnabar ore, which is where you get what mercury is mined from. I mean, that's basically holds the mercury very tightly. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't present any major environmental risk. It's only when it's, 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 it's chemical form changes yeah. that suddenly it becomes, goes from being somewhat inert to being very dangerous. Yeah. In regards to contaminants, is there research being done on microplastics at Tahoe? Yeah. So we started that uh, about three or four years ago. This was great because every summer we we um, employ interns. Or, sorry, I use the word employ loosely <laughs> because we used to offer positions and students, some from UC Davis, some from elsewhere would, would volunteer and, and they would start that work or do that work. And microplastics was one of those areas. I should say this summer we've started a more formalized our internship program. We're actually paying a, a $3,000 stipend oh, for eight good. weeks of work because we want everybody to have the opportunity yeah. without 
only those who's who don't need the money having it. Anyway, so we started off a few years ago. Uh, very simply, they just go along to beaches with a mark off an area and sieve the sand, and there was we was everybody was shocked at just how much plastic was there, just leftover scraps from people's picnics on the beaches or stuff that are washed up. So then, I guess two years ago, we sort of took it to the next step, and we started doing. Uh, measurements of microplastics in the water, so measuring with these uh, these sort of nets that are used to skim the surface, mm-hmm. uh, and then taking water samples from different depths, uh, measuring water that was being drawn out of the lake for people to drink, mm-hmm. and also looking at the sort of organisms, uh, fish and clams that may have taken it up, uh, and we were shocked. And how much was there? So remember, as we said earlier, Tahoe doesn't get any wastewater. A lot of plastics, microplastics in San Francisco Bay, are stuff that's sort of been put in there by uh, from wastewater. Uh, microplastics go through the wastewater treatment and they're put back in. We don't have that, that major conduit. So what we found is there were similar amounts of microplastics at Tahoe um, as there are in San Francisco Bay, which was just wow. stunning to us. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was just it just blew us away. Um, and, and maybe part of the reason is that San Francisco Bay has this huge amount coming in, but it also has tides that are mm-hmm. taking it out to sea. We're very much a, a very closed system. We have one stream that goes out. And on average, every year, it takes out about one five hundredth of the volume of Tahoe. So mm-hmm. microplastics have a long, long life here, and they seemingly they accumulate. And then, could you talk to some of the downstream effects of microplastics? Yeah, well, I think that's something that's a really hot topic everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even the work we were doing, much of it, we were. The, the sieve, the, this this trawl we are using to skim particles, it has a mesh size. I, th- I think it's something like 250 microns or 150 microns. Um, so we were only capturing things that were were smaller than that. It was sort of there were very large plastic pieces, I mean, relatively large plastic pieces. The things that we weren't measuring were things that were smaller than that the things that could you could ingest. Yeah. Um, and so we did a bit of work on that, but it seems this seems to be a, a frontier everywhere is when instead of it being several millimeters in size, what mm-hmm. happens if it's several nanometers in size where you it's in the drinking water you use or it's and you can't see it right oh no you can't see it um measuring it is difficult so we just we just got a little bit a little bit more funding um to just look at the final things not much funding just enough to do a pilot study Mm -hmm. to say well how much when we when we compare what we get in this this net we we were using with what what we missed, you know, just the pure water. Uh, we can we can measure the microplastics down to about one one or two nanometers. Okay. And so, 
since he will do this, and hopefully in about six months, we'll be able to say, yeah, the there are lots of these particles. My my guess is that there will be lots of them because everything yeah. else we've studied, um, as things get smaller and smaller, there are just more and more and more of them. And, and the other thing with with these sort of nanoscale particles is that even though mass-wise and volumetrically they're tiny, if you sum up all the surface areas of them, it's huge. Mm -hmm. And so they become, they become, um, I, I guess, what, what, what's the word? They're, they become a substrate mm -hmm. for other things to grow. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that's, yeah, it's hard to know how the micro, how the plastics get in there. I'd like to think a lot of it is just from our carelessness. You know, people are just throwing away stuff and maybe, yeah, things that we could control. We could greatly reduce if people were made aware of it. But we're still not even sure of that. People swim in the lake and many of our clothes are treated now with yeah. microplastics. Our, the rubber tires on our cars yeah. are, are not rubber, they're plastic. Wow. Yeah. Um, and when you have 15 million visitors a year to the Tahoe Basin, to the watershed, yeah. that's that's a lot of tire wear. Hmm. Um, and and you and as as the vehicles get electrified um, and are carrying around lots of batteries, tire wear will increase. So the problems, hmm. yeah, we do all this research thinking we're ticking <laughs> off the problems, but in, in many ways the problems are, yeah. are outpacing the rate at which scientists everywhere are, are working. And then, have you looked at microplastics in the snow to see if it's coming from like the sky and like snow melt and then into the basin. No, we haven't. But that's uh that would be that would be interesting. As I said, a lot of many of the nutrients, especially the nitrogen part of the nutrients, um, comes from atmospheric deposition. So yeah. yeah, maybe maybe there are microplastics that are just caught up in the air and we can blame San Francisco or the, <laughs> or the Central Valley. But but again it's a it's a collective thing, and coming back to solutions, once you know what the source is, then you can start thinking of solutions. Yeah. Are there any effective filters to collect these microplastics? Not, not that I'm aware of, but I, I haven't really sort of looked at it. Sure. I mean, you know, traditional filtration, you know, running things across a mesh, this is just way too fine for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Certainly, in the case of Lake Tahoe, there's a there's a huge, a huge volume of of water in, mm -hmm. in Lake Tahoe. I mean, I think in our education center, we have this thing. If you were to empty Lake Tahoe and spread it out over California, the water depth would be sort of up to your knees across That's, all of California. I mean, yeah. it's 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 staggering. Somebody was telling me the other day this year in this record snowpack year mm -hmm. that the snowpack the water equivalent of the snowpack was 50 cubic kilometers something like that well tahoe's volume is about 10 times that <laughs> so even all this snow a huge amount of snow across all the sierra i mean you know, this volume is is huge 
Mm-hmm. But, but again, it isn't just a Tahoe problem. Yeah. Every drinking water reservoir likely has has microplastics, and our bodies are taking them in. And people are, I think, really interested and really studying what effects they have. What are some of the ways that you guys are looking at water quality broadly? I know there's some metrics that you guys have been keeping up since 1968, but what what are those factors that you're putting in or looking at rather? Well, we, we do the basic things like, uh, I mean, we measure water chemistry. Uh, and, and that's sort of one of the specialties that we have here because the, the levels, the concentrations of nutrients are incredibly low here. Uh, I mean, compatible with you know the middle of the Pacific, um, and so most commercial chemistry labs just it's way below their detection limit. So this is sort of one of our our specialties. So you know we do that routinely down at different depths, uh, once a month, actually twice a month, um, and so yeah, we do the chemistry. We, we sample the phytoplankton, the algae. Uh, and surprisingly, that's an evolving story. No two years are the same. Some years, one species dominates for mm-hmm. strange reasons. So, so we have the chemistry, we, we have the biology, um, and we also do the physics. Mm-hmm. And the physics is, I find particularly interesting because that's that's sort of really my my background, my specialty, um, and that's evolving in large part because of climate change. Hmm. And so what we've found, I mean, the, well, the typical pattern of all lakes is that in summer they get they get warm on top, as as you would expect, but that that warm water is is less dense, is lighter than say the cold water deep down, and so when that happens. It makes it difficult for the lake to mix. It doesn't mix. Oh, okay. And so, you know, one of the things we've been working on by sort of taking continuous measurements of temperature at all depth is well, is climate change impacting that, the mm-hmm. amount of mixing that takes place? And what we've found is that effectively, what we would call summer when the lake is warm on top and cool at the bottom is getting longer. Okay. So probably you know, in the last 60 years, that we call it a stratified period, maybe two or three weeks longer than it was previously. And models for the impacts of climate change show that by the end of the century, it's going to be something like two months longer. Wow. Which means, well, some people would say, that's great. I can go to Tahoe, it'll be warm. And yeah, that's can't argue with that. That's true. But it means that winter is correspondingly shorter. And win- winter is the time when more mixing takes place because it's cold and, and a lot of renewal carrying mm-hmm. oxygen down to the deeper parts of the lake takes place. So you're suddenly getting less of that. It's like, yeah, you're having parties at your house (laughs) more months of the year but there's less time to clean up and it's um there are consequences to that we believe yeah and and it's not this isn't just a tahoe thing this is uh all lakes i mean we're Mm -hmm. working in chile as we said before and that's sort of one of the key questions there in projecting you know what will happen there uh with climate change and with changing land use 
And then what are some of the other key metrics to determine lake water quality? Well, I, I guess the one Tahoe is synonymous with is is clarity. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, and we measure that using something called a Secchi disc. Mm-hmm. So Secchi was... Angelo Secchi was not a limnologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was actually a Jesuit priest um, and an astronomer uh, back in the 19th century. And he was he founded the Vatican Observatory. And I guess he had a buddy of his, uh, Admiral uh, Cialdi, who was in charge of the Vatican fleet. So the Vatican was pretty aggressive in those days. It would go to war, um, things like that. And Cialdi was very, you know, Ah Secchi, who was a pretty smart mm. guy. Um, how do I know if, if my warship is going to run aground? Because I don't have a, yeah. know, a depth finder and a lot of, countries, a lot of ports would put chains across their harbors. Um, and these chains were designed to rip the bottom off a, a wooden vessel. Oh, okay. yeah. So Seki came up with this, this disc to say, well, you know how deep the bottom of your ship is. It's 12 foot. Yeah. Uh, if you can see this white disc down 14 feet means, well, you can then, you can see a chain. You keep sentries posted to look for it. If you can only see this disc four or five feet down, then you're sailing blind. And so so this weapon of war, I'd say, (laughs) has now become the most widely used limnological instrument around the world. Um, And what's great is that everybody understands it. Yeah, It's basically a disc. How far can I see down? We have probably, if we were to add up the inventory of equipment we have, we probably have a couple of million dollars worth of equipment. Every All of it has to be recalibrated. It breaks. It's sent to the manufacturer. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard. The Secchi disc, this 10-inch wide disc, doesn't need any of that. When we explain, when we come back into the marina, people say, what was the clarity? And you say... 84 feet. They say thanks, and yeah. they go away. Um, and so it's really effective uh, as a communication device, but it also integrates everything that's happening in the lake. If it's very low, if you can only see down 40 feet, uh, which for many lakes is good, but for Tahoe it's bad, um, then – Something's something's happening. Is there is there a lot of runoff coming? Mm. Or are there a lot of very fine algae? What what is it? So so it's it's an instanta- almost an instantaneous measurement for us, telling us something is amiss. Every year we put out this sort of clarity report. We did it like a month ago, mm-hmm. and I mean it's very easy to average twenty five numbers, but we have to work for a couple of months. Because as soon as we say this is what the number is, the next question is, well, why? And so <laughs> it takes us two months to figure out why. Was it a drought year, a wet year? What was coming in on the streams? Mm. Has the food web changed? Things like that. So, yeah, that, that's probably sort of the, certainly the signature metric for Lake Tahoe. And yeah. everybody looks forward to it. Yeah. 
Could you explain the difference between clarity and blueness? Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, that's hard. So uh, you've probably seen those bumper stickers, keep Tahoe blue. Mm-hmm. Um, well, really, I think that was, that's supposed to be keep Tahoe clear. <laughs> because, I mean, that's what we've been measuring mm-hmm. is, is the clarity, not the blueness, at least through the Secchi disc. But the the blueness sort of has to do with a very complex set of light measurements that, that mm-hmm. we do take. And that's you know, when we start telling people about that, you sort of see their, <laughs> their eyes roll on the back of their head. Um, but it really is you know, the blue that we actually determined. Uh, this was a few years ago. So one of our researchers, Dr. Shohei Watanabe, hmm. he came up with the precise wavelength of what Tahoe's blueness is. I forget what it is. It's 570 nanometers. So like keep Tahoe at 570 <laughs> nanometers doesn't doesn't have the same the same ring to it. Yeah. Uh, but it's I mean it has to do with light scattering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically uh, light scattering and light absorption. Mm-hmm. And so if you had a lot of, say, algae at Tahoe, essentially the light that is scattered um, and the absorption of certain wavelengths of light start rendering it greener mm-hmm. and greener. Um, oh. if, you had, if you had water that was totally devoid of anything, you, if you taken your earlier suggestion and filtered all of the water in Lake Tahoe, mm-hmm. um, it would still be blue. Uh, because it's a reflection of the sky. Um, But it's just not, that reflection isn't being affected by by the scattering and absorption that's taking place. So it's actually, I'm waffling a bit because it's a a very simple question without a simple answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what are the biggest things impacting the clarity now? Well, as we were talking earlier, uh, we found that it was the scattering of light by these inorganic particles that's the largest factor. Mm -hmm. Um, The nutrients do impact phytoplankton, uh, and they do play a role. It turns out that it's, it's the very smallest phytoplankton that have the largest role, mainly because their size interferes with with a wavelength uh-huh. of light. So historically, at Tahoe, the phytoplankton were quite large. And so they didn't really impact clarity at all. Over time, and this is sort of another sort of area of research, they've gotten smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And so there are years in which, for whatever reason, phytoplankton are, are relatively high in abundance and we can see that yeah, they may have clarity is really low that year mm-hmm. on account of the phytoplankton. More more years than not, they're low and it's it's sort of things that are coming in from the watershed. Uh you know, very fine particles that are the dominant dominant factor there. And then are you actively trying to make Tahoe clearer or are you kind of measuring it more? Well, um, well, 
we are measuring it more, but we are actively making it clearer. So you know, when we found, for example, that it was the particles that are being washed in that were the the major factor for clarity that changed the whole management. And so for you know, for the last 15 or so years, 15, 20 years, there's been a push to to apply engineering approaches to keeping these fine particles out. I think what's I think the conclusion that I've come to anyway, and I think it's slowly being realized is that that isn't working because you know one way of keeping particles out of something is you build what's known as a detention basin. Basically, it's a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the water flows in and it stays in there long enough for the particles to settle out and it overflows and clear water leaves. Well, the particles we're talking about are so fine that they they're not going to settle out in a few hours or a few days. So even though there was good intentions, the people were trying different things, it hasn't worked mm-hmm. because for the last well, over the last 20 years, despite the expenditure of billions with a B, billions yeah. of dollars, the clarity has stayed the same um, when the effort or the goal was to to improve it by 10 meters. So a sort of an interesting hap- thing happened a few years ago is that you know, Emerald Bay is sort of an embayment in the southwest corner of Lake Tahoe. In some ways, it's a separate lake. Hmm. Uh, because it, there's only about a two-meter sill that divides the two. So there's not a lot of cross-movement. So one of the things we we started measuring, this was around 2012, again, because one of our, our postdocs was interested. And I, in a weak moment, I said, sure, because <laughs> I had to pay for it. There was no funding. Um, so they went down. And she was interested in something called a mysa shrimp. Mm-hmm. So this is something she'd done her doctoral research on, and she just wanted to continue studying it. So the mysa shrimp had been introduced to Tahoe in the in the sixties, um, and for you know, many many years, people had been studying it, and it was there. It taken over. It had changed the system, and yeah. People lost interest. It was wasn't going anywhere. It was there, so you know, she went down to Emerald Bay. You have to sample these at night. You drag a net vertically through the water, um, and they went out, and the net came up, and it was empty. There were no mices. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, did the same thing in Tahu, and yeah, there were lots of mices. So three months later, they went back. I mean, and sometimes. This is a natural system. There's lots of variability. So one zero reading is is just noise. Went out three months later, same thing. Zero mice shrimp. And so this, so I started getting interested at this <laughs> point. Uh, and then you know they'd also go out during the day, um, and they started to notice there was a return of these other zooplankton mm. called Daphnia. Yeah. So when the mice shrimp had been introduced in the 60s, what was observed is that they immediately devoured the Daphnia. Mm-hmm. The Daphnia were gone. 
And that sort of thing had been seen in other lakes where the mysis had been introduced. So one of the things they started doing when they were there during the day is using this, taking the Secchi depth measurement. And they found in Emerald Bay over the next few months, or over the next two and a half years, as the numbers of Daphnia grew and Mysis was still zero, the clarity improved. Hmm. So it went, it improved about 10 meters, you know, over wow. 30 feet. It was wow. huge. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at Tahoe, I mean, clarity varies year to year, but nothing like that. Yeah. And so I guess what was born out of that was this, sorry, I should finish the story. Eventually the Mysis came back, <laughs> ate the Daphnia again, and the clarity returned to what it was. So what was born out of that was this idea that maybe the mysis are the problem. We didn't yeah. realize they were affecting clarity. And so there's been a lot of attention since then on, well, maybe we could remove the mysis because when, when they're absent, the system seems to heal itself. Yeah. Are Daphnia present? Like, can they coexist at all? Over long periods of time? No. It, well, sorry. Yes or no. Um, so this was some of the work done in the 70s and 80s where they where they found that if the mysis numbers uh, was a sufficiently low, mm -hmm. I think the, it goes like, let's say, you know, 27 per square meter, mm -hmm. um, below that level, they can coexist. But normally the mysis numbers are 100, 150, 200, yeah. and they just Devour. we just never catch Daphnia normally. Yeah. So so that was the goal. It wasn't to eradicate mysis because it's impossible, uh, we believe, um, but to keep the numbers low so they could coexist. And suddenly, you know, the idea was well, we could do it in Tahoe, and maybe we could get these large improvements in clarity. Yeah. yeah. And what is the significance of Tahoe being the clearest it's been in 40 years? Okay. I was hoping you'd ask me that question. <laughs> um, the significance is that about two, two three years ago, um, what we, we noticed through this routine monitoring. And, that, and that's the value of monitoring. Mm -hmm. It isn't a scientific experiment with a hypothesis. It's just keeping track. Is the system changing? So we went out and we were doing our usual monitoring of zooplankton, which I should say is funded purely through philanthropy. We don't oh. have agency funding for it. So it's people who support our mission that pays for it, who pay for it. Um, we suddenly, we, they, um, noticed that the sort of the zooplankton were gone. Like, wow. I mean, they do measure it during the day and boy, they've just disappeared. Um, and, and then they'd also go out at night and a few months later, they noticed the mysis have disappeared. Mm -hmm. So you know, extrapolating from what we'd seen years earlier in Emerald Bay, we made this prediction. We bet Daphnia will come back and clarity will improve. Um, and so that's exactly what happened. You know, six months later, we started seeing Daphnia 
And we started seeing, the data shows starting in about July of August of 2022, the clarity in Tahoe went from being as bad as it's ever been to suddenly the best it's been in 40 years. I mean, wow. you could just, it's, I mean, it's that clear. Um, and so because it started in the latter part of the year, when you average it over the whole year, it doesn't really seem like a big change. But when you look, when you compare that, you know, August to December period with all the data before, we've never had that period as clear since the 1980s. Wow. It's just amazing how quickly nature will f fix itself. It is. And I mean, I, if I haven't said it already, I'm not an <laughs> ecologist. Mm -hmm. um, but, and it seems that, and I guess what I appreciate it, and I think people who know more about this subject than I do um, have also, some agree, some are still very skeptical, um, that zooplankton can change things very quickly. Yeah. I mean, in, in a matter of months. Yeah. I mean, as I said, Clarity hasn't changed here in 20 years. And then to suddenly go back to better clarity than anything since the 80s is is, is amazing. Um, but again, the question is, well, how do you how do you keep that going? Because the mysis will will come back, the Daphne will go, and the clarity will return. So my big push in the last year or two, while this has all been happening, is we should be out there studying this because there are lots of things we don't know. Mm. This is the opportunity to see the system when it's rapidly changing mm. and try to fill in those knowledge gaps. Certainly. What are some of the like main, because you're talking about how you have positions open for interns coming yeah. in for this summer. What are, and you have these questions that you want to have answered. What are some of the, I guess, traits or backgrounds that you guys could benefit from? Uh, well, we, we, we consider ourselves sort of quite multidisciplinary. Um, so, you know, we have staff, uh, who are, and faculty who are working on, on forest health. Mm. Um, so you would say, well, that's got nothing to do with the lake. Well, it does because it's part of the watershed and the watershed feeds the lake. But there are people. So I know one of the interns who is coming in, that's what he is interested in mm. and they're they're thrilled to have this guy is actually from Sacramento mm -hmm. um, coming up here. And yeah, he's going to be looking at sort of things like the water demand of, of trees, which, which changes mm -hmm. as the health of the forest changes, as it gets things, trees get stressed by drought or by insect infestation, things like that. We have somebody, one of the interns is looking at microplastics. One, you know, we have another program where we're using drones and helicopters to take images of the whole oh, wow. near shore of Lake Tahoe mm -hmm. every month. And uh, one of our, you know, with a drone, we can stitch together these images very, very neatly. Uh, There's just some great software. You, you're interested in the no, I think I think we saw one of them when we were looking at it. <laughs> the, uh, um, but with the helicopter, that's a lot harder. Yeah. And so that's going to be. The intern that a particular intern who's coming in, um, she's really interested in in tackling that problem. I mean, she's she's here for eight weeks. She may not get to the to the final solution, 
but she's certainly going to contribute to it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're just three examples. So we have people, uh, another one working in the chemistry lab. We do a lot of public education. So one of the interns will be working in maybe developing a new exhibit for our, okay. our outreach center. Mm. Yeah. But they're coming in with their own questions or these questions that are already out there that they're assisting on? Well, that's it. We're, we're, I mean, at the end of the day, we need them to do stuff. Yeah. Um, so, and this is the first year we've had them paid. So they're going to have to do horrible things like washing <laughs> bottles because our paid staff have to wash bottles too. So yeah, there's things they have to do, but the, the, when we sort of told all the staff, hey, here are the interns. You can choose as many as you want, um, but they can't just be washing bottles or just doing routine things. They have to, you have to work with them. You have to mentor them that they have a research project at the end of the eight weeks they're going to be making a public presentation. They're going to have a poster. Oh, wow. We're going to have people there, and they're going to be explaining themselves, which I think is a great conclusion yeah. this summer. And I think it's a tremendous growth opportunity that not, not all undergraduates can get. Yeah, definitely. And then as we kind of wrap up here, could you talk about the State of the Lake report and what that kind of synopsis is? Yeah. So, I mean, for many, many years, uh, you know, we we're associated with this clarity reading, with the Secchi depth. Uh, and it sort of occurred to me that, well, the center opened in 2006. And, and you, know, you bump into people and they say, oh, yeah, UC Davis, you do that, that disc thing. And it occurred to me that, wow, we've got this $13 million center. And all people think we do is sort of go out and <laughs> look at a white disc. So there was, we were our own worst enemy in saying what we do. I mean, we do this low-level chemistry. We do tremendous amount of things. So the State of the Lake report was a an attempt to let's look at all this monitoring data, this routine data. Let's plot it up. Let's say very succinctly, you know, written not for scientists, but written for the general public. You know what's ha what's the long term trend? How was this last year mm -hmm. different? Did it buck the trend in in some way? And I naively, I was a lot younger there. First one was two thousand and seven. I uh, thought, well, yeah, it'll be hard the first year, but after that, it's just adding another point. <laughs> what could be so hard? But it's because it is. It's taken more time, but it's been incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Um, because in some ways, we collect so much data that the a big challenge is actually looking at it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you sort of think, oh, yeah. we've got it, we've got it. But this way, it forces you to plot it and look at it and try to explain what's happening. So it's been, I think, a huge success, I think, for you know, publicity for us, but also advancing advancing what we do. And so, yeah, it's sort of a love-hate thing. I mean, yeah. where are we now? We're, uh, we're in, uh, midway through May. I need to start working on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, ta it takes a little bit of time, but it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth it. Definitely. Do you have any parting words of wisdom or any advice for people listening? Yeah, well, if there are students listening, then uh, think about limnology, not just the physics, or physical limnology, the biological, 
I mean, they're all important. How they interact is important. But, but basically, lakes, reservoirs, are just central to to our communities, to our lives, to our well-being. And so, you know, one of the things we actually lack is you know, people working in the social sciences. There's a lot of questions on what well, one of the big questions at Tahoe now is is recreation mm-hmm. and you would think a tourist oriented place like Tahoe would like you know bring it on but certainly during COVID when there were lots of people up here there was the, the basin couldn't handle yeah. that amount mm-hmm. of recreation so how, how do you manage that on public lands what's too much what's enough what do people want so there sure. are Lots of questions outside the hard sciences that that anybody, um, well, not anybody, but people from a whole range of backgrounds can can deal with, and it's sort of very local. It can be an international problem. It can be a a challenge, a problem in a very small community. So yeah, limnology. It's where it's happening. <laughs> there you have it. Thank you very much, Professor Schlato. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.